Our topic tonight out of Revelation chapter 11 is the two witnesses. And it's an important topic, really only because it uh, gets so much publicity. It's talked about a lot, a lot of different theories on it. And so we want to see from the Bible what the Bible has to say regarding these two witnesses. Now, of course, uh, it's part of the Bible. It's part of Revelation. It needs to be understood in context. And I said, started that by saying, of course. But unfortunately, the majority of people who look at two witnesses totally forget where it's at and, and just look at the two witnesses and just try and piece, pick things out of whatever they want and, and get it to suit whatever they, they want without seeing it in where it is in relation to the book of Revelation in the section that we're in. Um, and so for a review, right, if you're drawing a blank on, well, where are we? <laughs> uh, we're in the, mid in the middle of the trumpets, the sixth trumpet in particular, right? And so this needs to be understood in that context of these trumpets, of the trumpets as a whole, and the sixth trumpet in particular. And we looked at the first part of what was talked about in about the sixth trumpet. And so we have chapters 9, 10, and 11 all building together, and really the ones before it as well. And also looking at the trumpets, understanding it in the context of the seven congregations, the seven seals, and then the seven trumpets, because each one of them overlap the same way that the prophecies in the book of Daniel overlap, repeating themselves, covering the same time periods, and expanding upon the, the lessons learned regarding the time periods from the prophet's day to the very last day. And we'll see that as we conclude because this chapter concludes with the seventh trumpet. And so the two witnesses should not be removed from this aspect of the sixth and seventh trumpet. And again, the trumpets as a whole. And so we left off with the sixth trumpet and saw some time prophecies, some very specific time prophecies even one that takes us down to a very day of its fulfillment. And we saw it being fulfilled on the very day that was prophesied that it would, or that was interpreted that it would. And it built on a prophecy before it, a time prophecy that was listed before it. And so really two time prophecies put together, coming out exactly on a day, a month, and a year, exactly as it should. And so over 500 years of prophecy in these two prophecies, coming to pass directly in their fulfillment. Now, we're going to see some more time prophecies within this section, and they also don't, aren't just out of nowhere. They fit in context with the, rest of Dan, with the rest of Revelation, the rest of Daniel, and in conjunction with those other two time prophecies that we, just, that we looked at in the, in the previous chapter, in chapter 10. And so if you missed that, um, be able to look back and see the... the the DVD on that, uh, on or whatever, however you're watching it, uh, be able to watch it um, on chapter 10. And we saw that it took us, the second of those two time prophecies took us to August 11th, 1840, when the beginning of the Ottoman Empire began to fall. And again, in context of that chapter, it had a lot to do with with Islam and Islam coming into Bible prophecy, Islam having a play in interaction with God's people and the Word of God, and the effects that it had on it. Okay, and so that's where this chapter then picks up. Again, originally there weren't chapter divisions, there weren't verses, and so it all had, you know, understood together. Okay, so with that as an introduction, let's look at this chapter 11, these two witnesses, starting in verse 1. 
And I'm going to just kind of read through and then we're going to go back and look at it. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar and those who worship there, but leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it for it has been given to the Gentiles and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. So already we're getting a time prophecy in verse one, this 42 month time prophecy. All right, and so he's given a read and told to measure the temple of God. And so here again, we see this temple of God. We've seen this over and over again in Revelation. And so far in Revelation, he's been talking about the temple of God in heaven. So that's what's in reference here in context again of the whole book. He's measuring this temple of God in heaven and the altar. And so you have the altar there. We've already seen menorahs there. Uh, we've seen other aspects of the, of the temple. And we're going to see some more at the end of this chapter. And so the temple of God in heaven is talked about a lot in the book of Hebrews and other parts of the Bible. Uh, and the, of course, the, the earthly sanctuary, which was a mirror or representation or a foreshadowing or a blueprint of what was taking place in the heavenly sanctuary. Believe out the court that's outside the temple, right? And so you have the temple, you have the, 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 the tabernacle inside the temple, and you have the outside temple with, of the temple with the, with the labor and the altar of uh, burnt offerings. And then outside that is the court of the Gentiles, right? And so outside of the heavenly, so then we have the earth. Uh, and it says, don't measure that. And it's going to be trampled underfoot for 42 months. And so we have the heavenly temple. We also have in the Bible, the Bible talks about other temples. It talks about our bodies individually being a temple of God. It talks about the people of God as a whole being the temple of God with Yeshua as the chief cornerstone and each believer as fit stones making up the temple of God. And so it'll be trampled underfoot for 42 months. Verse three, I will give power to my two witnesses. They will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. And these are the two olive trees and the two menorahs standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. Fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. Well, that's very graphic. That's very, you know, uh, uh, interesting. So here you've got these two witnesses. Uh, and again, we have another time prophecy. And they're clothed in sackcloth. And they are olive trees, but they're also menorahs. And fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours people. All right? So very kind of interesting. Make great movie. And uh, so verse six, these have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood, to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. And when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them and kill them. Again, Pretty interesting stuff. This beast comes out of the pit and fights against these two witnesses and the fire that comes out of their mouths and devours people is not big enough or strong enough to devour the beast. And so they end up dying and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called ba uh, Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And then those from the people, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days. Another time prophecy. That's number three here and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. Okay, so again, so now we have these two witnesses, fire 
breathing witnesses get killed by a beast and their bodies laid out there. The beast didn't eat them and devour them. So they're laid out there for these three and a half days. And they are in um, a city, which is Sodom and Egypt. Now, I don't know if, how well you are with geography, uh, but Sodom wasn't in Egypt and our Lord wasn't crucified in Egypt or in Sodom. Uh, so maybe John uh, got a little confused here or maybe there's something much deeper to understand than a surface reading. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now, after the three and a half days of the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. So they're raised back to life. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. And in the same hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. And in the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Okay. So they go up to heaven, raised from the dead, they ascend and they, uh, the great earthquake takes place in the city, which our Lord was crucified, which was neither Sodom nor Egypt, uh, but that's what it said it was. So what is all this about? Who are these two witnesses? Are they the Jehovah Witnesses, two Jehovah Witnesses that'll come and knock on your door? Are they two Mormon missionaries that'll come and knock on your door, breathing fire out of their mouths? Who are these two witnesses? Are they flame-throwing, flame-breathing Jews who anytime some enemy comes at them with a gun, they just burn them up and devour them and kill them? Who are these uh, two witnesses? Now, it's very easy to just take this and throw it into the future and say, well, it's all in the future and this is how it's going to happen. There's going to be these two witnesses and they're going to come and they're going to burn people up with their mouths and again, the whole thing. Because it's easy just to throw everything in the future and then, you know, sci-fi, uh, you know, and God will start doing stuff that he's never done in, in 6,000 years and uh, take a book right out of some uh, science fiction movie and make it take place. You know, it's kind of like a kid saying, when I grow up, I'm going to be a veterinarian. I'm going to own 10 acres. I'm going to have lots of horses and I'm going to drive around in a Mercedes Benz and I'm going to get married and have three kids and, you know, do all kinds of things. And you really can't refute it because they're only six years old. right? So, you know, the sky's the limits in the future. Right? Well, maybe, you know, and the order doesn't really matter because you don't know what's going to happen. And it can change and all kinds of stuff. So yeah, it's easy to throw it into the future and say, this is how it's going to happen. And Revelation is real easy to study by just throwing the whole thing in future and then just trying to take it literally. But it really doesn't fit what the Bible says as a whole. So let us let the Bible interpret the Bible and the Bible to tell us who these two witnesses are. How's that sound? Right? Instead of some dream or nightmare. Revelation 11, verse 3. I will give power to my two witnesses. And again, 
We have to see this in context of where we've been. Chapter 10 left off. The time prophecies in the late 1700s, early 1800s. I will give power to my two witnesses. So where should we go to find out who the witnesses are? Type in witnesses in the internet? No? Go to Israel? Yeah, should we go to Israel? Should we go to Waco, Texas? Should we go to the mountains? Should we go to the hills? Where should we go? Why don't we all go to different places? We can all spread out. Yeah, talk about it. Talk to ask others. Where should we go? Someone said it. The Bible. Oh, that's a good idea. Let's go to the Bible and see what the Bible says. Well, I'm going to show you. Okay, so let's go to the Bible. I will give power to my two witnesses. So let's see what the Bible has to say is God's witnesses. Now, I'll warn you ahead of time. It's not nearly as exciting as two Jews who bring, breathe fire and who fight with beasts and lose and who are raised from the dead after three and a half days and, and ascend up to heaven. It's not going to be that exciting. It's not going to be that imaginary. Imaginative. Okay. All right. Let's see what the Bible says. Deuteronomy 31, 26. Take this book of the law, put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a, help me out, witness, witness against you. So who is the witness here in this verse? The Torah, the book of the law. The book of the law will be a witness. That's one witness. Let's look back in the Bible and see who his partner is. Matthew 24, verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. Who's the second prophet? Who's the second witness, rather? The gospel. So we have the law and the gospel are the two witnesses. That's God's witnesses. The law and the gospel. Coming together, working together, testifying about the God of heaven. That's God's two witnesses. That's God's witnesses on this earth. That's God's, that's who testifies witnesses about God. Tells us about God. The word of God. And again, that might not be so exciting, but we have to understand, this is the book of Revelation. It was written in code so it could make it off the island of Patmos and make it to the people of God. Some of who had the Bible memorized and portions of it memorized, who knew it well. And when John says there's going to be two witnesses, they're able to think back to what Yeshua said and what Deuteronomy said. That God's word is going to stand there as a living testament, as a living testimony of God's truth. And not just one aspect, but both aspects together. Not just one witness, but both witnesses working together. And we see this throughout the scriptures. The law and the gospel coming together. They can't be separated. We're saved by grace, not of works, anything we should boast. And we are created onto good works that God created beforehand. They're together. 
in the Ark of the Covenant, right? And that's what it mentioned in this verse, the Ark of the Covenant. And we're going to see that in Revelation, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. Inside of the Ark of the Covenant, what's there? The law of God. And what's on top? The mercy seat. And what was sprinkled on the mercy seat? The blood. Right. The law and the gospel together from the beginning of time. In Genesis, God gave his law. Don't eat from this tree. They ate from this tree. God provided sacrifices for them. The law and the gospel all throughout the scriptures. And yet the majority of professed Bible believers reject at least one of the witnesses. Either rejecting the law of God or rejecting the gospel. And often when they have one, they reject the other for some strange reason. Yet in the Bible, they come together. It says that they kiss each other. Truth and righteousness, mercy and truth have embraced each other. Coming together, God's truth, his law, and yet his mercy and his grace, his forgiveness, his sacrifice. Coming together, working in harmony together. The law of God reveals our sins to us, which sends us to the Messiah to receive forgiveness of sins. He cleanses us, transforms us, fills us with his Holy Spirit that gives us the ability to obey the law of God. So they work in harmony together. The law sends us to Yeshua. Yeshua fills us and sends us back to the law. Changes us. Empowers us and sends us back to the law. They work together in harmony together. So there's just two verses that settle it pretty plainly. But again, there's a lot of more evidence. And we'll see where these two witnesses in particular are going to fall in this prophecy. Because we have time prophecies as well. I'll give power to my two witnesses. They will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are two olive trees and the two menorahs standing before the God of the whole earth. It doesn't say they're Jews. It says they're olive trees. Olive trees that breathe fire out of their mouths. I guess olive trees will start growing mouths. But they're not olive trees, really. They're menorahs. They're menorahs that breathe fire. And that can be killed. And that can be raised back to life. I mean, we try and take it literally. They're going to have a lot of problems. But what are the olive trees? What, is, what are the olive trees used for? I mean, they make nice wood. You can make nice carvings out of olive trees. But what in particular are olive trees for? Well, yes, oil. You jump the gum. But they get their name, olive trees, because they produce olives. <laughs> right, yes. And the olives are for, yes, you can eat them. But primarily, or the majority of it was used for, in biblical times especially, for oil. For making oil. And then, that's right. And then you have a menorah. And what does the menorah need? Oil. Right? Otherwise, it's just a, a stick figure. Right? So the menorah needs the oil. And why does the menorah need oil? To be a light. Right. And so the, and Zechariah talks about the olive trees feeding these menorahs as well. And so the oil fills the menorahs so that the menorahs can give light. Well, let's look at another Bible text. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp, a menorah to my feet and a light to my path. Again, the word of God is like a menorah filled with oil, shedding light 
testifying about God, witnessing about God, God's word is the lamp that directs our paths and leads us in the way everlasting. Also in verse 3, I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. And also in this chapter, the verse before, it mentioned the 42 months. Seven different times in Daniel and Revelation, this same time prophecy is mentioned. Mentioned in different ways, sometimes referred to as 1,260 days, two different times like that. Sometimes referred to as 42 months, two different times like that. Sometimes it's time, times and half a time, three different times like that. But it's referring to the same exact time period. It must be a very important time period to God that he mentions it seven different times in different ways. But in all these different places, in the Daniel and Revelation, different chapters, it's referring to the same time period over and over again. And so when is this time period? We've looked at it before. But again, the day for a year, right? So in Numbers 14, when we were in the wilderness, sent 10, 12 spies into the wilderness. They came back with a bad report, 10 of them anyway. And we, people believe that the two bad testimonies and God said, your children shall wander in the wilderness 40 years according to the number of days in which you searched out the land, even 40 days. Each day for a year, you will bear your iniquities even 40 years. So the spies were there searching out the land for 40 days. They came back with a bad report. And so God said, did you believe their bad report and you're not willing to go in, then you're going to wait 40 years a day for every year. And we see that in Ezekiel as well. So we've been using that principle. Again, just about everybody uses the principle a day for a year. The difference is we're using it consistently with every single time prophecy in Daniel and Revelation. Other people use it whenever they want and don't use it whenever they want. And that's a big difference. To be consistent in using biblical principles or making things up and getting it to suit what you want. So these 42 months are the same as 1,260 years. And also in Ezekiel, it says, I've given you a day for a year. So again, using that day for a year, these 1,260 days is 1,260 years. Again, day for a year and that time. So legally recognized supremacy of the Pope began in 538 A.D., when there went into effect a decree from Emperor Justinian making the Bishop of Rome head over all the churches, the definer of doctrines, the corrector of heretics. Okay, and that's so Catholicism came onto the scene with its power, authoritative power, in 538 AD, because again, as we just read, Emperor Justinian gave them that power, bringing it to another level. Not only that, but another thing took place at that same year. Virgilius ascended to the papal chair, 538 AD, under the military protection of Belserera, however you pronounce that, uh, according to the history of the Christian church. So he's also given military protection. So given elevated position, given military protection. And also at that same time, the last of three kingdoms of the Original Roman Empire that divided up into 10 different divisions, three of them were opposing the Catholic Church. They were Aryan nations. The third of them 
got knocked out, and that's also prophesied in Daniel chapter 7. The third of the last of the three, the Ostrogoths, the last of the Aryan kingdoms to oppose the Roman church, were overthrown in the year 538 AD. So it had no more powerful opposition against it. The emperor gave it its position, gave it military uh, backing, and thus it ascended to the throne of Rome, the city of Rome with its power and begins its power reign. Continues 1,260 years exactly. And at the end of the 1,260 years, Napoleon's general Berthier broke the Roman church's political power in the year 1798. Exactly, uh, exactly 1,260 years from when it reached its ascendancy, its power is taken away. Napoleon comes in, takes the Vatican captive, takes the Pope captive, puts him in prison. He languishes there and dies. The Catholic Church is still around, the papacy is still around, but no longer with the power that it had, at least for a time. And the time period? 1798. We just saw where this prophecy in chapter 10 left off, the end of the 1700s, beginning of the 1800s. So it fits that as well. So did God's two witnesses prophesy in sackcloth during this time period? Yes, this time period is known as the Dark Ages, good portion of it, good portion of this time period. The Bible was not in the language of the people. The people were not allowed to read the Bible. The Bible wasn't outlawed totally. The priests had it. It was chained to monasteries, uh, but the, it wasn't in the language of the people, and the people did not have access to it. And so during this time period, there was persecution for those who were reading the Bible. And so the Bible was still there. But it was as if it was in sackcloth. It was as if it was in mourning because it was not able to shine as the light that it had been intended to be. It did not have the oil of the Holy Spirit. It did not have the light of the menorah shining to every person. It was in the, that's why it's called the dark ages. It was darkness over people's minds, superstition and traditions took over the, in place, replaced the Bible. And so, again, if they read the Bible, they had to do it in secret and hiding. Many were killed for doing so, burned at the stake in other horrible ways, the rack and dungeons, persecuted for reading the Bible, for having the Bible. So the Bible was in sackcloth during that time until liberation comes. They were hiding up in the mountains, People like the Waldensians, we've talked about them, who would copy the, still have the tables, still can go and see it today, the tables that they would copy the, the, the scriptures on, take it down into the valleys and share it. The risk of their lives, many died doing so. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. Fire proceeds from their mouths and devours their enemies. Does the Bible have the power to do that? Does the Word of God have the power to do that? Has the Word of God ever devoured anyone with fire? Certainly has. Fire came down and all um, the earth opened up with, uh, when, when they opposed Moses and fire broke out upon them. 
in the book, well, book of Job, I think that was from the devil fire coming down. But other times we have in the Bible, and certainly at the end, the word of God will stand as a witness in the judgment. And those who oppose the word of God, those who oppose the gospel and the law of God will be burned and devour its enemies. Verse 6, these have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over the waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Does the word of God have the power to do that? Yeah, we have during Elijah and Moses. And that's why some people think this is Elijah and Moses, these two witnesses. So they take this portion, make it literal, ignore these other portions. They're a menorah, they're, a, they're an olive, they're a tree, they're all these different things. And they apply that. But it was not Elijah or Moses that did those things. It was the word of God coming through those men that did those things. Verse 7, And when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Now, it gives us a hint there. It says spiritually called. Right? So we understand this, again, in context of Bible prophecy. It's spiritually. So what is this spiritual about Sodom and Egypt? And Egypt isn't a city, right? Egypt's a country. Right? So again, it's spiritually understanding. When Moses came before Pharaoh and said, God has said, let my people go. The Lord has said, let my people go. How did Pharaoh respond? Who is your God? Who is the God that I should let your people go? And deny. He had lots of gods, but he's in denial of the God of heaven. He's in denial of the God of, of Israel. Who is your God that I should let your people go? A denial of the God. That's what Egypt's referring to there in, in, in context of the word played in Bible history. And Sodom? What was Sodom about? City of sin, right? Sodom and Gomorrah, right? The, the sinful denial of the word of God, denial of the commandments of God, going against the angels that God sent there as a, as a warning to them, resisting, and fire comes down from God out of heaven and devours them. And so again, a denial of the word of God, sin, right? And so this area where there's debauchery and, and licentiousness, And also a denial of God. Where also our Lord was crucified. Well, again, he wasn't crucified in either Egypt or in Sodom. But they're talking about Jerusalem. He was crucified there. But again, it's talking spiritually. Called Sodom and Egypt. And Jerusalem at the time of somewhere towards the end of 1700s, 18, beginning 1800s. Is not necessarily a player in this. But is there a place on this earth where the Lord is crucified in a sense? Where open sin is taking place? Where God is denied? And in particular, the two witnesses are killed. Well, let's look for some more hints. On November 10th, 1793, the government of revolutionary France 
celebrated the festival of reason as it rejected traditional religion, mostly Catholicism in France, and inserted a philosophy known as the cult of reason as the national religion, this new government renounced all forms of deities. Churches, including the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris, were seized and converted into temple, temples of reason. I got that from history and headlines. <clears throat> in, uh, so it gives us this date, November 10th, 1793, where France is the first nation that I know of that voted to deny God. That there is no God into their constitution or whatever their bylaws have made a law. There is no God. A total denial of God. They outlawed the Bible, burned the Bibles, marched this woman through the cities. This is the goddess of reason. And we had the revolution take place, blood running in the streets like water. Horrible revolution taking place and a affront against the word of God and against God himself. Denial of God, again, converting churches, forbidding worship, forbidding the reading of the word of God, not only again for the laity, but for everyone. A total outlawing of it. And again, the Bible being burned in the streets and outlawed. People's houses searched, People killed, women, children didn't matter. Then those from the people, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put in graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Does the word of God torment people? Does the law and the gospel torment people? It certainly does. That's why they're so angry at it. I mean, it's just a book. It's just who cares? But the word of God convicts the soul. It lays conviction upon us. It tells us the law of God tells us what is right and what is wrong. And that brings conviction, and that's why there's such resistance to it. That's why people aren't just satisfied with just living their own sinful lifestyle. They can't just go and do that. They have to then attack the Word of God as well, and the people of God. It's not enough for them to just let live and, 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 and go on. So we see down through the ages, the attacks on the Word of God for centuries and centuries. Attempt after attempt to twist it, to change it, to outlaw it, to deny it, to destroy it. Because it torments, it convicts until we surrender and accept the gospel and allow God to write his laws into our hearts and minds. But a time prophecy here, for three and a half days, they will lay in the street and merriment will be done over them. Each day for a year, from Numbers 14, verse 34. So three and a half days symbolizes 
three and a half years. So they outlawed the Bible, trampled it underfoot, denied God in their constitution for three and a half years. Started on November 1793, the French Assembly had their vote, and the French Assembly voted again three and a half years later in 1793, in the summer of 1793, to reverse that edict and to allow the Bible to be read and to allow the people to have religion and to allow the people to read the Bible. I think that's pretty amazing. Exactly, just about three and a half years later, as prophesied, in a place which was Sodom without a doubt. What was taking place in France at that time was horrible. Like Egypt in denial of the word of God. Crucifying the Messiah afresh in their denial of him, their stampling upon him. Transforming of churches, the killing of believers. And three and a half years later, the craziness was so crazy, they had to reverse their course. They even changed the Sabbath because the Sabbath, we only, they changed the seven-day week because the only reason we have a seven-day week is because of the Bible. We have a month because of the moon. We have a year because of the sun. We have a day also because of the sun, the earth and the sun. But the only reason we have a seven-day week is because of the Bible. There's no situation on the earth, the moon, the stars, the sun that gives us the seven-day week. So they outlawed it and they made a 10-day week. I don't know if it was maybe for the metric system, whatever, they came up with 10 days. And it didn't work. Because our body is on a natural seven-day cycle. And so they ended up going back to a seven-day cycle. The three and a half years, the same assembly that outlawed it, changed course and changed their laws. And then Napoleon comes in and then France has its transformation. And it's a year later after this, when Napoleon fulfills the end of that 1,260 years. So again, all these time prophecies are together. They're not just separate things, they're not separate chapters, they're not separate events, they're not separate numbers. They all fit together, rightly understood. Now, after the three and a half days, the breath of life of God entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. They heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. So it's predicting here, that the word of God, the two witnesses, the law and the gospel, the first part of the Bible and the second part of the Bible, the whole Bible as a whole, is going to somehow come back to life and ascend into a position that it won't be able to be devoured by a beast again, won't be able to be trampled again. Well, so let's see in history, if something event, some event took place shortly thereafter that does this very thing. In 1804, the British Bible Society was formed, began the mass translation of the Bible, mass distribution of the Bible, and then very shortly, that's only seven years later. 
And then shortly thereafter, just a couple of so years after that, the American Bible Society is formed. And today, portions of the Bible are translated into 3,000, I think over 3,000, maybe 7,000, I forget how many, thousands of languages. Impossible to kill it again. Impossible to outlaw it totally. People have it on their phones. It's on the internet. It's in hotel rooms. You can have it in small print, large print, on your screen, on your computer, on your tablet. And again, languages that are spoken literally all over the world. It's ascended up on high. Again, just recently before this, the 1700s and before that, it wasn't in people's languages for the most part. It wasn't going around the world. The most part, it was chained up and locked up. Mostly just in Hebrew and in Latin. But shortly, right after this time period, right after the 1797, just seven years later, mass translating, mass distribution of it comes back to life and ascends up in a way it's untouchable. I believe that's a direct fulfillment of this prophecy. And from beginning of the chapter all the way through, it all fits together in harmony together in the word of God and in the timeline. I will give power to my two witnesses. There is power in the word of God. There is power to transform hearts and minds. Much more than just bringing fire down and devouring a, a, an altar and a sacrifice and the water as with Elijah. Much more of the power than God even creating the earth. The power to transform hearts, minds, characters, decisions, attitudes, habits, to totally change us and recreate in us a new heart and a new life. That's the power of the gospel. To take out the heart of stone, that's the gospel. To put in a heart of flesh. And to write his laws in our hearts and minds, the gospel and the law of God together. Only God can do that. Only the word of God. There's no other book like it. You can read it from a young childhood to 90, 100 years of age. Over and over and over again. Every day of our lives. And every day it can be fresh and new. And something that applies to our lives that day. It's a living word. It's an amazing book. Not like any other book in the world. Translated more than any other book. Bestseller year after year. Mass distribution. Nothing like it. Survived down through the ages. Parts of it written close to 4,000 years ago. We still have those words today. How many other words that we have that 4,000 years old? The Word of God is an absolutely amazing book. There's power in the Word of God to torment us and not let us go until we surrender to it. That's why people either fight against it or embrace it. Very few that have no opinion on it one way or the other. 
It leads us to the Lord, leads us to heaven, leads us in the way everlasting. Describes the Messiah who the word became flesh. In the beginning was the word and the word was with us. And the word was God, the word, I'm sorry, the word was with God and is God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Shu himself describes himself as the word. Because his power in the word of God. Rightly understanding it, rightly discerning it, rightly applying it to our lives. With both in harmony together, with both witnesses together, with the gospel and the law, we're unbalanced and confused if we just have one or the other. But it's bringing both together. That's the power of God. Verse 13, in the same hour, there was great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming. The second woe, the second trumpet is past. A great earthquake. France was, went through basically an earthquake with its revolution and then re-revolution with Napoleon coming in. The whole country was again, like devastated as a result of that revolution. The trans, again, the topsy-turvy experience that they went through. And in many ways, still haven't recovered today. As far as belief in the word of God and trusting in the word of God. And the spreading of the gospel too. There were some great missionaries to France at one time in history great lights that shone in France. But this time period here, discussed here, and again, that's what these prophecies are about. They're about God's people and the spreading of the word of God. So we're not seeing places like again, North Korea or whatever other places in the earth that are not part of these prophecies. Not that they're not important to God, not that the people who live there aren't important to God. But these prophecies are tracking the places where God's word is taking root. And those powers that are either in favor of it and supporting it, or those powers that are opposing it. That's the theme. And that's why we're seeing it here. So the second one was passed. We're past the second trumpet. And this fifth and second trumpet, the first four trumpets, took one and two verses each. The fifth and sixth trumpet took chapters to be fulfilled. And then we fulfilled those, we read those chapters and those two trumpets covering that time period. And then that we're coming to the third woe is coming. And the third woe is the seventh trumpet and the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on the thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. So what's the seventh trumpet? What's the way to describe the second, seventh trumpet? The coming of our Lord. 
right? Kingdoms of this world, right? So that just like Daniel chapter two, the stone destroys the statue and all the kingdoms of the world and God's kingdom is set up. He shall reign forever and ever, right? And they're giving him worship and praise. Lord God Almighty is the one who, who, who is, who was and who is to come. It's his coming. The seventh trumpet, just like the seventh seal, just like the end of the seventh congregation, just like the end of each one of Daniel's prophecy, taking us to the Lord's coming. And the nations were angry and your wrath has come and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Here we see two of things taking place in the same event, again at the coming of the Lord. Nations are angry. They go and try and attack God's people. They're angry at God. Why? Because God's wrath has come. It's the time of the dead to, for the dead to be judged, judged at the end of time. And he rewards his saints. So he's giving out his rewards as well. So his sheep are being brought into his fold. The wheat are being brought into his barns. He's coming for his people. He's sending forth his angels. He's coming with his rewards. His rewards are everlasting life. His rewards are immortality. He rewards your servants and the prophets and the saints, those who fear your name, small and great. And at the same time, the wicked are destroyed. And you will destroy those who destroy the earth. It's the coming of the Lord. Again, we've seen this over and over again. Matthew 24, other places in the Bible, describing this event. Again, the sheep and the goats separated at the same time. The wicked destroyed. The tares, the weeds burned up simultaneously. And here in this verse again as well. So again, in context, finish the sixth trumpet and come. So why is this gap between that time period, the early 1800s, the late 1700s, and, and we're still here today? Because at any time since that time, the Lord could have come. All the time prophecies, and we saw this when we did Daniel chapter 12, all of the time prophecies have already been fulfilled. There's no more time prophecies. There's no more time. The only thing God is waiting on is for God's people to be sealed. We saw that in Revelation chapter 7. He's waiting on us to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to accept both the gospel and the law, to allow both those things to change our lives and transform our lives so that he can seal us so that when the nations are angry and go to make war on God's people, nothing can affect us. We won't yield. We won't compromise. They can tell us we can't buy or sell. They can starve us. They can kill us. It won't matter. We won't care. We won't surrender because we're filled with God's spirit. God's spirit seals us. The latter rain power being poured out upon God's people making us his witnesses in the earth to stand for God, to stand as a testimony against the darkness of this world. And so he's waiting and waiting and waiting. But there's really nothing hardly else that needs to take place. And when God's people are transformed and filled with his Holy Spirit, God's Spirit will empower us to take the gospel to the world. And when this gospel is preached in all the world, then the end shall come. And as we go forth, and witness, again, it stirs up Satan's wrath. 
And he brings in his mark of the beast so that we can't buy or sell. And we'll get to that. The Bible explains exactly what that is. Of course, he tells us, he warns us not to receive the mark of the beast. Well, certainly he's going to explain to us what it is. And the word of God does explain to us what it is. We'll know exactly what it is by the time we finish that chapter. And who the beast power is that enforces it. So we can be prepared and ready. And know the days we're living in. And so all those are the only events that need to take place. Not a lot of stuff. And we did Daniel 11, a long chapter. There's only five verses that haven't been fulfilled yet. Very little left to take place. God's waiting on his people to surrender to him fully and completely. And to let his gospel transform us and let his spirit write his laws into us. That's it. That's what we're waiting on. And the next verse in this chapter, last verse in this chapter, verse 19, and the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple and there were lightnings and noises, thunderings and earthquake and great hail. Again, the temple of God and the temple of God is in heaven. And now John is seeing the ark of his covenant. The last item in the sanctuary. You have the altar in the front and the ark at the very back. He's taking us to the very end. And what is inside the ark? The law of God. Right? Standing there as a witness. And again, on top of the ark is the gospel. The throne of God. The mercy seat of God. The blood of the sacrifice. Together. So this chapter starts with these two witnesses, the law of God and the gospel, and ends with this picture of the Ark of the Covenant in heaven. And when only in the earthly sanctuary was anyone allowed in before the Ark of God to see the Ark of God? Only on the Day of Atonement, the Day of Judgment. We just read in the verse before, at the time of the dead that they should be judged. So the Ark symbolizing the very end of time. In the sixth of the seven feasts. And the last one is really just heaven. It takes us right to the judgment. takes us right to the Ark of the Covenant. Right to the seventh of the, or the last of the pieces of furniture in the sanctuary. It takes us from John's day all the way to the end of time. The seven trumpets. And thus fulfilling the account of the trumpets for us. So as we prepare to pray, we look at this chapter, the theme of it, the word of God as God's witness. Do we allow God's witnesses, do we allow God's word to witness to us, to speak to us, to prophesy to us, to testify to us? Do we allow it to convict us, to show us right from wrong? Do we allow it to lead us to the Messiah? Do we allow it to fill us with his spirit? To empower us to live holy lives, righteous lives, lives in harmony with the word of God. If you've been neglecting the word of God in a moment when we pray, before you and God, confess that. You haven't been spending enough time in it. You've delayed days. There's days where you go where you're not reading the word of God. Maybe you're just feeding on sermons. Really, that's just regurgitated food. You wouldn't want regurgitated food <laughs> any more than we should want the word of God solely that way. 
read the Word of God for ourselves on a daily basis. If you haven't been doing that, again, the moment when we pray, confess that to God, surrender it to Him, and allow Him to empower you to put you on a worship reading schedule. Secondly, maybe you've been reading it, but it's become just rote. You just kind of read it, just kind of because you have to, you're in habit of it, and you just read it, but you're not getting anything out of it. It's no longer feeding your soul. It's no longer convicting you. It's no longer teaching you. It's never longer enlightening you. It's no longer guiding you. It's just becoming really just a memorization piece. And you want the Word of God to become alive in your mind and in your heart and in your life. Then a moment when we pray, ask God to do that. Thirdly, maybe you've been doing those things. Maybe you're on fire for the Word of God. Maybe you love it. Maybe you love the Lord. And that's great. And you want to take that Word and share it with others. And you want to pray in a moment when we join together in prayer and let God go before you in open ways that you can share His Word. Nothing more powerful than sharing the Word of God with someone. You tell stories and all kinds of things. But the power is in the word of God. He gave power to his two witnesses. And as we go forth, as his witnesses sharing his word, we need his spirit to go before us. We need his spirit to discern it. And we need his spirit to soften hearts and open doors before us. And so if you want to go forth as God's servant, sharing the word of God with others, in a moment when we pray, let's ask God to empower us, remove the fears, Give us boldness and to go forth and to share his word and to open the doors before us. So if any of those areas apply to you, let's let God do his work or maybe some other area in his life. And maybe you're just amazed at what are we look at, like four time prophecies tonight, all fitting together with the other time prophecies of the other weeks. Really amazing. And you're just amazed by the word of God, the prophecies of God. We can praise God as we pray as well. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, ruler of the universe, we do thank you for your word. We are thankful for the law and the gospel. Lord, another thing, forgive us if we've sided with one side or the other. We've either denied one and just accepted the other or put more one emphasis on one over the other. Lord, forgive us for not having balance and bringing your two words, your two witnesses together. So Lord, fill us with your word. Forgive us through the sacrifice of the Messiah. And anoint us with your spirit. Live in us and out of us. Give us a love for your word. Give us a love for you. And give us a passion to share it with others. In Yeshua's holy name. Amen.